0: This is the John Oakley Show Podcast. Here's what's on the John Oakley Show Podcast for Thursday, September 17, 2020. We hear from Adrian Woodridge. He's got a new book out now that examines why this pandemic has exposed the weakness in Western government. As well, we're joined once again by Dr. Bobby Corrigan, urban rodentologist and pest control legend. All of this starts now. (laughs) Thank you. The <laughs> cat top 20 billionaires in this country saw their assets increase by $37 during the pandemic. And uh, meanwhile, the middle class and those hoping to reach it have somehow been beggared by the pandemic. So there's societal change in the wind. And uh, to that end, I wanted to start with a rather insightful book that's been written by a friend of this show. He's been on uh, on past occasions. Adrian Wooldridge is a political correspondent for The Economist and co-author of The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the weakness of the west and how to fix it Adrian welcome back to the oakley show in Toronto appreciate your joining us well thanks
1: thank you so much for inviting me and good evening in uh in Britain
0: yes well you know uh I was just looking at this uh wake-up call and its subtitle why the pandemic has exposed the weakness of the West and how to fix it so uh, let's just start with that overarching premise that The COVID has exposed flaws and vulnerabilities in Western societies. How so specifically?
1: Well, it's as though the whole world has been set a common examination. Uh, It's probably the first time that the whole world has been set a common examination. And the results of that examination have been rather surprising. That countries that we always thought were well-governed, such as Britain and the United States, have failed dismally. And countries that we always sort of thought had were slightly uh, uh, also ran, such as China, um, have actually passed the exam quite well. So this is an extraordinary message that, that some Western countries have failed the test. Other Western countries, have, uh, uh, other Eastern countries have, have passed the test. What is the test? The test is how good your government is at dealing with the threat to people's lives. You know, that's the fundamental role of the state, as laid out by Hobbes in in the Leviathan in, in, in the 17th century, is the fundamental obligation of the state is to protect people from harm. And uh, the American government, the British government, um, many governments in the West have failed that test, and other governments in, in, in the East have, uh, have succeeded surprisingly well. I mean, the differences are huge. <laughs>
0: But Adrian, I mean, one of the obvious rejoinders to that would be you've got uh, the system in China is an authoritarian one, whereas individual liberty still counts for something in the West. And sometimes people will be in defiance of even the best practices put forth by their governments. Do you see individual liberty as being a linchpin and a problem?
1: No, absolutely not. I think individual liberty is absolutely crucial to our quality of life. And I don't think individual liberty is the specific thing that's, that's made the difference here. Look at a country like South Korea. Look at Seoul. Um, Seoul is a very vibrant city. Um, it's got you know great nightclubs. It's got a great drinking culture. It's got K-pop. It's got... Um, you know, uh, Parasite, which won the the Oscar. It's got a very vibrant, creative scene, very individualistic culture, not a culture of uh, uh, obedience. It's democratic, it's liberal. But the number of people who've died in Seoul of COVID is about 50. The number of people who've died in New York of COVID is about 20,000. The number in London is about 5,000. So the thing that really differentiates these countries is not liberty it's efficiency it's the quality of the government it's how well organized the government is now china has dealt very well with covid having incubated it in some ways it dealt well with it through very authoritarian means but other countries um, have done it through through much more liberal means so it's really you can preserve liberty preserve Uh, democracy and deal with COVID. The real problem is lousy government.
0: All right. And so you're saying that this lousy government, COVID has really exposed lousy government. It's uh, kind of, all right. And and so it's revealed uh, the government for lacking in different means, but uh, specifically in protecting their people. But uh, it goes much broader than that. And you're talking about uh, maybe having uh, lacked uh, the proper investment in the state. Over the years, and uh, it's it's led to this point in time. So are you saying effectively being a statist to a certain extent is not a bad thing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's been a sort of culture um, in, in much of the West, particularly the United States, um, that government is the problem, not the solution, which is Ronald Reagan's phrase. Um, And, you know, he may have been right at the time. Government may have got too big and too sprawling and uh, sprawling and too interventionist. But nevertheless, government matters. Uh, A successful government makes the difference between life and death in a pandemic. So America and much of the West has gone too far in deprecating government, too far in saying that government is just an afterthought, too far in starving government of talent uh, and we need, we need not necessarily bigger government, but certainly wiser, better, smarter government. Um, and I think that's, that's absolutely right at the agenda. So, you know, liberalism in some ways has been uh, for a long time associated with just being against government. I think liberalism needs to go through an internal revolution and recognize that government is sometimes the difference between a good society and a failing society.
0: You go on to say uh, there ought to be incentives to attract good people into government, the most talented to serve in the public sector. Uh, you you believe that?
1: Oh, absolutely. What's happened since, since basically the 1960s and 70s is that very good people, highly intelligent, motivated, ambitious people have stopped going into government. So if you go back to the 1950s, People really expected to spend a period in government service. If you remember JFK's great inaugural speech when he said, don't ask what government can do for you, uh, ask what you can do for your country. Don't ask what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. There's a tradition of public service. And what's happened over the last few decades, partly because of the rewards for going in the private sector are so much bigger in financial terms, but partly because of a culture of skepticism and even hostility, towards government and public service is that good people have stopped going into government, the best people have stopped going into government. We need to reintroduce that. And you can do that partly through a spirit of public service. Um, we need more people like uh, Mayor Bloomberg willing to you know, suspend their career in the private sector and go into the public sector. But also what we talk about in this book is having incentives. Um, in In Singapore, it's quite common for the government to pay all of the school fees and all of the university fees of pe- bright people that they select early on in their lives and say so you can have all of this for free, uh, the best university education in the world, provided that you're willing to spend, let's say, five years, perhaps a little bit more, working in the public sector. And I think we need that desperately, particularly when it comes to technology, um, technology expertise. You know, the, the, the public, private, public sector is in a different century from the private sector when it comes to technology. I think there are five times as many people in the United States, five times as many people who work in technology services in the public sector who are over 50 than there are under 30. You know, so we need to inject uh, you know, some people with, with, with uh, younger people who know about uh, IT, who, um, who know about uh, the modern world, and get them to serve at least for some time in the public sector.
0: It's an ironic twist that I guess there was a recent study said 25% of college or university grads in America would like to serve in the public sector, but it was mostly prompted by the guaranteed benefits like health care that they would get rather than rolling the dice in the private sector. Again, with Adrian Wooldridge, political correspondent for The Economist, co-author of the book The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West, and how to fix it and so we're seeing the increase in the welfare state i mean this is something on plan from our prime minister in his throne speech next week it's already been intimated you know maybe a a guaranteed basic income uh because people have gotten used to something that is a a relief benefit here in the throes of losing their jobs as you know on mass people did so uh this is something that may now be actually ingrained in the fabric or the expectation going forward. So uh, you don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. You think that these things may accrue to an overall benefit to society going forward?
1: No, no, not necessarily. I'm, I think that the, the state has uh, an important goal to step in during an unprecedented crisis like a financial crisis or a pandemic to support people's incomes, to give them basic income, to, re, to, to to galvanize the economy, to stimulate demand. But I personally don't like the idea of a guaranteed basic income, because I think that the, if people you know, don't think that there's a connection between work and reward, I think that's morally bad for the country. I believe, you know, this is not a book praising big government, this is a book praising smart government. And sometimes we need bigger government. I think in the United States particularly, they, they, they could do with having a Canadian healthcare system. Um, with more government intervention, But sometimes you need smaller government. You need the government not to intervene. But I think indiscriminately giving people income support or money that's divorced from work, I find that very worrying.
0: All right. Uh, On the matter of the health care, for example, uh, let's just go down that road here quickly because I'm up against the clock, but you talk about fixing things, how to fix in the post-pandemic world. uh, What would you prescribe? If there were three or four salient things, what would they be?
1: Uh, the most important thing is to get high-quality people going into going into the public sector. I think the second most important thing is to get the technology of the private sector put into the public sector, so that technology comes up to scale. And we've seen enormous uh, examples, you know, through through um, uh, doctors' appointments being made online and and, and over, over video rather than going in directly into to, 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 to the um, doctor's surgeries. What you can do. With, uh, with with high tech in the public sector, we need lots more of that. Uh, and I think in the United States, you know, they have a, a very confused, very um, bureaucratic, actually, and expensive healthcare system. And I think having a national insurance healthcare system, as they have in Germany, um, is is not a bad system to have. So I would I would say reorganize the American public health uh, system. I would also like to say, and I think I should put this on record that um, America. Has also had problems with its president. You know, under a different president, the, the 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 system would not have been quite as catastrophic as it has been. So, having a, a, a new president will, you know, I think invigorate the system quite a bit. So, new leaders, better leaders, um, and also not having um, quite such an anarchic uh, set of people in Washington as you currently have.
0: Well, he's also teed off on globalization because he says it's gutted the middle class. Uh, How can we revitalize the middle class? We're seeing that there's kind of an existential thing happening now with the middle class being diminished uh, and eroded. How would we forestall all of that and reclaim the middle class?
1: Well, I think that that, that there has been a problem with unfair competition with, with China. And I think Trump has actually been right about that. China has done enormously well from entering the world trade organization, the world trading system, but it's quite often cheated and it's quite often made it hard for us to invest to, to, to invest there and easy for them to invest here. So I think a more level playing field when it comes to um, China and trade is is part of it. But ultimately, you need to have a um, focus on productivity. And the best way to improve productivity is to have more investment in human capital, less um, restrictions or less regulations, more intelligent regulations, uh, and I don't think it's impossible that you can have uh, a, a middle class based on knowledge work, not based on manufacturing. But we haven't yet mastered that transition. You know, we had a large manufacturing-based, uh, healthy middle class in in, in the United States uh, and across the West um, in the 1950s and 60s, and that has definitely been eroded and definitely declined. And unless we can expand the middle class, we have a very unstable political system.
0: I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you finally. I mean, an investment in intellectual capital. Uh, You talk in the book about uh, taking down the teachers' unions. What's the thinking?
1: Well, the the thinking there is that we should always be focused on the... uh, We should be less focused on the the producer and more focused on the consumer. Producers, such as the... Teachers unions, such as the police unions, have resisted innovation, resisted reform, particularly productivity, improving reform, defended the worst teachers in America, you have this, you know the famous dance of the lemons whereby you can 't sack teachers who 've done some terrible things so unions have been very reactionary, very defensive of the worst, perhaps unions could change and become agents of uh, of good practice, but I would say you know it 's much better to shift power from the producers to the consumers um, and to, 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 to have a system whereby unions have the power to defend people um, who are not very good at their jobs, you know, get rid of that. So, I, you know, we talk about the Singapore example with, where you've got teachers paid an enormous amount if they're really, really very good. Teachers promoted very quickly, becoming headmasters very quickly, but also shaken out of the system if they're if they're not that good. I'd apply that even doubly to, 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 to the police, where the police unions in the United States have defended people who've done the most appalling um things. So protection of people who are not good at their job is never gonna be a way of building a competent state.
0: That's true. Uh In that case, the milk rises to the top. Uh, Adrian Wooldridge, it's always a pleasure. Political correspondent for The Economist, co-author of The Wake-Up Call, why the pandemic has exposed the weaknesses of the West and how to fix it. Always a delight. Hope to talk again soon down the road. Stay well.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I had for the last, I don't know, three or four weeks, uh, been noticing this little brown creature sort of uh, meandering about, (laughs) scurrying along the fence and then along the base of the house. And uh, it had me properly concerned because, I mean, you don't want to open the barbecue one day and something jumps out at you. So and this was something that I was kind of wary of happening because I knew I saw it sniffing at one time around the BBQ. So I called the Orkin man and uh, he came in and he set up various traps and a black box and told me there were pellets in there and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it looks like it's done the trick. So props to him. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, along with his visitation, I got a treatise on exactly how these rodents proliferate right now, and they're the scourge of a lot of communities, downtown Toronto for sure, the old city especially, And uh, but outside the Toronto area in the GTHA, you've also got other cities or communities that have been plagued by rodents. In fact, just released by the same folks, Orkin Canada. They come out with their top 25 list of Ontario's rattiest cities based on number of treatments get a load of this oakville and burlington have cracked the top 25 oakville number 11 burlington number 13 Ooh, this is not pleasant i'm sure if you're in those parts you've noticed uh or at least there's a likelihood that you've noticed an increase in these kinds of encounters or sightings anyway so what the dickens do we need to know about all this let's find out from the expert dr bobby corrigan's back on the oakley show urban urban rodentologist and pest control legend Doc, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well, John. How are you doing? I'm okay. Uh, and so I said I got a dead rodent and I got to dispose of. What's the best way, by the way, just to uh, put them in the garbage or uh, and leave it up to the, the sanitation workers, bury it somewhere? How should I get rid of this thing?
2: Yeah, the recommendations there, John. I usually get a plastic bag, you know, put your hand into the plastic bag, and then grab that rodent that dead rodent and then invert that bag back over your hand tie it tie it like you would with a twist tie and if it's just one rodent you can just throw it in the trash
0: okay well uh i don't know if i'll pick it up with a shovel and put it in the bag i'm not touching the bag like you know it's a a doggy doo-doo or something but listen these increased sightings this pandemic related per se doc
2: you know it could be it's a case by case for one thing we know that the rats are disoriented, John. They you know, their normal feeding spots and their hidden dumpsters and, you know, all those places they have at night while we're sleeping we don't know about. And now with this pandemic shutdown and restaurants doing different schedules and foods being put out in different ways the rats themselves are probably wondering what in the world's going on so some of the pandemics causing rats to show up in different areas and forage a little bit differently and you know we're seeing this around the globe the rats just seem to be acting different
0: are they territorial so that if you've got one there's a good chance or is it something that they'll just proliferate on mass
2: They're very territorial. Uh, They start out now with one family, you know, the female gets pregnant, she has about 12 pups. They stay in that area, then other families in that same area, if there's food, they'll begin to form a colony, which is several families, and then if there's lots of areas of lots of food in, say, an old downtown, where it had a lot of tourists and restaurants, Uh, They can end up with a full-blown population that takes over a year or two to develop, and then then you end up with a real problem.
0: Well, this is what the Corrigan, the Corrigan man. (laughs) The the, I'm so. The Orkin Man. Uh, Maybe you've got your own uh, going concern here. Uh, The Corrigan Man. Uh, Again, Dr. Bobby Corrigan is the urban rodentologist and pest control legend. And so what he had told me, the Orkin Man is, uh, in fact, if you start to see them during the day, you really got a problem because they tend to be nocturnal, true or false?
2: That's very true. And he gave you some good advice there. And and so usually, usually, you know, they're nighttime animals. They like to hide in the shadows so they don't get seen and they scurry about low to the ground. If they're starting to be seen during the day, at least it's enough to say, I better take a closer look. But, you know, the pandemic is causing a little bit of a scientific all bets are off with animal behavior. So, you know, it it doesn't guarantee anything, John, but certainly if you see them during the day, you should wonder why are they being seen.
0: In general, with the animal behavior being altered by the pandemic, why is that?
2: Well, you know, Uh, especially with rats, John, they're very sensitive to hunger. You know, you and I, we can sometimes say, well, I'll skip a meal here and there, and I may not like it, but I'll be fine. But when rats, you know, when they miss a meal and then they miss another meal because someone has changed the garbage practice or something or someone switched over to good garbage cans and denies them, They have a very short temper for being hungry, and so they start wandering about. They start getting aggressive with each other, you know, and they they just do not like being hungry for very long at all.
0: I thought I heard a faint knock on my door about 2 o'clock in the morning last night. I thought I was imagining, maybe it was a rat saying, you know, what did you do with my brother, and uh, how come there's no food? You know, you've contained all the garbage in that green bin. Uh, what gives? Anyway, uh, by the way, I thought I'd leave that dead rodent there for a short spell so that the other ones would take their cues. Like, you guys want some of this? Stay away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, so the Orkin guy, he, he put uh, these black boxes around uh, with the pellets in them, which, as you say, uh, these are the meals that the rats go in, and uh, eventually it kills them. But he's also got those spring traps, you know, the old standard, and uh, he's baited them. What do you you think is the most effective bait when it comes to these rodents? Well,
2: uh, the science has shown and proven that, you know, the rat is so successful, John, because it doesn't actually have a favorite food you know so the the trick usually when i bait a rat trap for example i look around and say well what did these rats grow up on and let's just say you know they're feeding from a dumpster or something has a a chicken restaurant nearby for those traps chicken is going to be the best bait now if there's rats saying Apple orchard, which you can have rats in apple orchards easily. The best bait for those traps are gonna be apple slices. So it it's the best thing is to figure out what are they eating and I'll match that.
0: I, I see because the Orkin guy said Nutella. They find it irresistible, but he also qualified it by saying so does he, and he didn't have any bait with him. I suspect that he might have eaten it <laughs> in a sandwich and he sure changed me on the rat bait. He had to come back. My hand to God, that's a true story. Uh, so <laughs> So, all right,
2: but Listen, these spr- Everything loves peanut butter John, and anything nutty. Every we all. Sometimes I think if we smeared peanut butter on the hulls of ships, the whales would lick it off. It, it's everybody <laughs> loves peanut butter. Uh,
0: <laughs> on the hulls of ships, eh? Okay. Do these spring traps? Uh, they still work as well.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. The spring traps they they work very well. However, you know, it's usually not not a job if it's rats. It's not a job for the homeowner. Uh, you know that's a very powerful trap, and so uh, and if you're and if you're not used to setting them, it looks simple, but it can be a little bit tricky. So any rat traps, I always advise, uh, it's really a job for the professional. You don't want a broken finger from this or a broken knuckle. So a mouse job, it's pretty simple. You're not going to bust a finger with a mouse trap, but a rat trap gets a little bit dicey.
0: All right, so call in the professionals such as Dr. Bobby Corrigan, urban rodentologist and pest control legend. So, preventative measures, uh, I guess the commonsensical thing is just keep food sources away. Uh, What else would you do, Bob? Well, you
2: know, what you said, I can't. agree with you more. You know, it's both simple and complex at the same time, John. If there's rats around your neighborhood and you see them regularly, they're getting fed somehow. So the first thing preventatively is just to ask yourself, is there anything on my property? How do I take out my trash? Where do I put it? Is anything getting into my trash? That's, that's simple. But a lot of times we take out the trash, we throw it in a garbage can, we walk away from that thing, and we go maybe watch a TV show, and the rats say, thank you very much for making it easy for us. So the second thing they, everyone can do preventatively is just keep an eye on all your doors and keep an eye on any cables or pipes that enter into your apartment or into your house and keep those sealed below your door, you know, measure it. And and if it's 12 millimeters crevice below your door, a rat can squeeze below that door and get into your basement and get into your kitchen. So, you know, take care of that. Don't let that crevice exist there. So that's that's the it's kindergarten one and two quite honestly don't feed them and don't let them in
0: wow uh you know that's the other thing once they're in the house that's a whole other issue i mean once they're outdoors uh, you can deal with it i try to you know seal off the perimeter but there's no guarantee because a neighbor might have the problem and they just go under the fence so uh i'm really shoveling sand against the tide although i did hear bobby and confirm or deny i mean these rats are so industrious there was a condo owner i know 13th floor of this building uh, down in Miami, and the rats came up through the pipes. I mean, they're climbers, I mean, they can climb like uh, any of these kids, you know, doing the rock climbing thing, can't they?
2: Uh, they're outstanding climbers, John. And, you know, uh, they'll enter to a basement, they'll find the pipe, the plumbing tree, you know, every has a plumbing tree, including your house, my house, apartment buildings, the plumbing tree. And so all our hot water pipes, our sewer pipes, All those pipes go all the way down to the building from the floor. And for rats, they're used to climbing vines and trees and twigs. They have feet that enable them. They have pads on the bottom of those feet that grip these pipes grip the anything vertical wires they and they're gray climbers and they wrap their tail around these pipes and they shimmy up those in no trouble at all so it's not a surprise to hear they were up on the thirty floor you know i find them in sometimes in my city they will find them 60 floors up in modern day skyscrapers so they're they're very good at what they do and that's why there's so many of them
0: well yeah and why they proliferated and uh continue to survive and thrive and now especially in a time of covid where they've come into these built-up areas uh suburban areas as well as well toronto uh oakville burlington as we said now cracking the top 25 rattiest places in ontario congratulations oakville you're number 11 burlington number 13 uh, so as a heads up uh, it,
2: Yeah, it's like the Super Bowl trophy. People trying to win the trophy of who's got the most rats. (laughs) That's
0: that's right. You can make book now on these different communities as far as they're going to uh, continue on unabated with this problem. We'll have to have you check in again uh, with the next infestation or whatever it is. Maybe raccoons next on the agenda, Bobby. But uh, we'll leave it for now. Wish you the best and uh, good rodentology going forward, all right? All right. Thanks for having me on, John. Take care. Stay safe. You got it. Ditto. Dr. Bobby Corrigan, urban rodentologist and pest control legend. We only go with the best. This has been the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, September 17th, 2020. You can listen live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.